This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, sitting in for Josh King, here's Jeff Smith. Hi, I'm Jeff Smith, uh, professor at the New School, and I'm filling in for Josh this week. And it's going to be a fun week. First, we dig deep into the way that technology, Twitter in particular, has transformed political media coverage with a special focus on the 2012 elections. For that, we welcome CNN correspondent Peter Hamby, author of a acclaimed Harvard study on the subject, a 95-page tome which describes the way that politics is now covered in 140-character bursts. Joining Peter and me will be Scott Conroy of Real Clear Politics, who literally wrote the book on a political pioneer in using new media, former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin. And after the break, we'll drill down into the New York City primary election with Salon political editor Blake Zeff, who's no stranger to the trench warfare that doubles as local politics here in New York City. Back in late 2008, as a Missouri state senator, one of my aides suggested that I get on Twitter. She explained that it'd be a cool new way for me to let my constituents know what I was up to. Sounds great, I said. A way to tear down the wall that separates those who govern from the governed. Yep, she replied enthusiastically before telling me that there was absolutely no way she'd let me tweet directly without filtering all my tweets. And this, in a nutshell, is the paradox of political Twitter and of social media and other new technological advances in politics. While they often purport to give the public an unobscured glimpse of politicians' actual, unfiltered views, most politicians' social media accounts are managed by the same spinmeisters who script their every utterance. Thus, the conundrum that Peter Hamby describes the fact that politicians may appear closer than ever with their snappy tweets and emails with hey as the subject line, but really, that is not the case at all. In fact, Hamby describes two 2012 presidential candidates who were as cloistered as any in history. John McCain's Straight Talk Express of 2008, on which he regaled reporters with war stories that were understood to be off the record, was now a distant memory. And by 2012, most of the press traveled inside candidate bubbles for days without getting near the actual candidate or even getting an on-the-record comment from a senior aide. That lack of access drove reporters, especially but not limited to those covering Mitt Romney, to spend their days writing snarky tweets that ultimately helped drive newspaper coverage of the campaign and helped shape national perceptions. Peter, do you think that Twitter had a positive or a negative effect on the 2012 presidential campaign and why? And welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks, Jeff. Um, there's no clear-cut answer to that. I mean, th- that's one might be one reason this took 95 pages to, to write. Um, look, I think I should start by saying that Twitter, uh, if you are a political journalist or a consumer of political news, is actually a positive thing on the whole. Uh, it allows um, uh, really good reporters, analysts, pundits, operatives to sort of rise and fall on their own merits and kind of punch through that kind of rotating cast of the same old, you know, journalists and pundits who you always see on the Sunday shows. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, if you are an obsessive follower of campaigns, you can get minute-by-minute updates of all of this stuff. The big uh, problem that I found in talking to about 70 um, journalists, editors, and people, uh, uh, political operatives that worked inside the Romney and Obama campaigns was that it just made everyone think smaller. Um, you know, it's been documented that 
on the internet um, in the sort of current news ecosystem. You can silo yourself into your preferred news universe. The way that works in Washington, which is already has a tendency toward groupthink, is to kind of you know, make it that we're talking to each other even more about even smaller stuff. Everyone is sort of covering the same things, chasing and confirming the same things. Um, small, kind of, frankly, dumb uh, gaffes or events. I'm thinking of, you know, uh, the war on women and Rafalka and these things that kind of became really big deals during the campaign actually weren't big deals. And most of the country is not on Twitter. In fact, um, only about 13% of the country during the campaign was on Twitter, according to Pew, and only 3% of the country was actually actively tweeting. So it, it just sort of made the disconnect between the political class um, and the, the, the voting public uh, even greater. Scott Conroy, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So what's your take? You were an embed on the Romney campaign in 2008, mm-hmm. and then you were on the bus with Sarah Palin uh, after that. And um, how did the campaign in 2012 that you covered differ from the 2008 campaign? Well, I mean, if you if you read Peter's um, paper, you'll get a pretty good idea of how much embed coverage we call the people that travel around with the candidates embeds because they're embedded with the campaigns. And usually they are very young, very inexperienced, 20-somethings that don't have much direct reporting experience at all. And they're suddenly thrust into the middle of a presidential campaign and covering that from the front lines. Um, so you'll get a sense from from reading Peter's paper about uh, how much that has changed over the years. I mean, when the embed program first started in the you know mid '80s, I think, um, really what they were there to do was to feed video um, back to the networks that they work for. You know, the three broadcast networks, um, and they were there to make sure nothing big happened, make sure, frankly, that, you know, nothing happened to the candidate physically that would cause someone to uh, panic at the network back home. But the job was... call it the body watch. Right, right. And that was the main point of having someone out there all the time, Um, you know, especially after the the 60s and and early 70s when we had so many assassination attempts, frankly, and assassinations of, of, of candidates and politicians. So that... Uh, position has evolved thoroughly to the point where in 2008 when uh, I did it and when Peter did it um, it was the first time that really you I I felt like we all had integral roles to play in the campaign because we were blogging you know we had we would write four or five blog posts a day and you felt like a big deal because you're you know I was 24 years old covering Romney campaign and you get to have a byline on cbsnews.com and you get to be the first one to write about events and uh, you know, you feel like you're actually contributing in a more significant editorial way than, but you're also on top of all that doing the things that the embeds previously did, which was feed video um, and keep the networks posted on what the candidates doing. Um, but by 2012, I mean that had really escalated even further as far as the workload, maybe exponentially, when you're tweeting on top of that. Uh, and so it's just you know the difference between maybe only filing a few times a day versus being able to have instantaneous reactions to everything and that that's not necessarily the best thing when you when you have limited experience so let's flesh this out a little bit the limited experience point uh question for both of you the people who used to cover presidential campaigns they were called the big feet you know the the jack germans the richard ben kramers uh jules whitcover and now, as he said, 23, 24-year-olds with, with limited life experience, many of them, you know, fresh from the Ivy League, long on brains, but occasionally a little bit shorter on perhaps judgment and discretion. 
The fact that they've got the first cut on history and in many cases are shaping national media coverage of these campaigns, is that problematic at all? Peter, what are your thoughts? Well, I think one thing I should say, I think there's a... It's not just the age thing, right? Like I think, not to toot our own horns here, but like Scott and I were embeds and young in 2008, but we also like, we're sort of genuinely interested in the subject at hand. And we had a natural sort of curiosity about politics and, and a passion for it. And I think that's really important. So you can be young and really, um, you know, a historian and be really into this stuff and you can be a good reporter. There's plenty of old reporters who are also bad. Um, <laughs> look, I think that... <sighs> They don't necessarily get the first cut at history, to be honest. I mean, like, the reason Twitter was such a factor in this campaign was a story could happen, a story could pop from a newspaper on their website or on a morning show, or Mitt Romney could say he doesn't care about poor people um, on CNN's American Morning at 8 a.m., and then that is the narrative of the day. And that sort of uh, radiates outward throughout the day. And the people on the bus and on the plane are reacting to that. So, like, back in the day when you had David Broder and Jules Whitcover and Jack Germond on the bus, they were the ones sort of interpreting what happened, and then it would make the papers and the TV and the radio the next day. Uh, With Twitter and the accelerated pace of the news cycle, um, that stuff hits immediately to the point where the people on the bus aren't exactly getting the first cut. But when they do get the first cut at history and they are sort of projecting their insights onto the internet directly via Twitter, Instagram, blogs, whatever. Um, I mean, this is, it, it can be a problem because the campaign and the Romney campaign in particular did not trust these reporters in any way. They thought that they were trivializing via Twitter what was to them a very serious enterprise running for the president of the United States of America. And meanwhile, you had the traveling press corps sort of tweeting about um, Jimmy John's sandwiches they ate for lunch or Mitt Romney's mom jeans or um, goofy hats they saw at the rallies. And those sort of like little tidbits, um, you know, find their way onto Talking Points Memo and BuzzFeed and Drudge and CNN and ABC and, um, you know, become full-blown narratives during the campaign. So it just made the campaigns completely guarded and defensive and they just put up a huge wall between themselves uh, and the traveling press corps. And, and let's be honest, I think if most of America knew that the frontline reporters traveling with the candidates every single day for the networks are, are 25, I think they'd be p- pretty blown away by that and pretty shocked by it because it is kind of a ridiculous premise when you when you really think about, you know, the extent to which this used to be something that was the highest professional calling. And that's not to say that the old days were better and that those guys were, were markedly, you know, perfect. But I mean, there is a certain experience level in journalism that I think benefits everyone that, that that's out there. And one thing, Absolutely. Jeff, too, is also like, it's not just that the Bigfoots weren't going out. I mean, yes. I mean, Dan Balls went out. He, I talked to him for the paper. He went out a few times, you know, uh, but like John King wasn't going out. All these like sort of brand name journalists weren't really going out. I talked to Paul West, um, who just retired from the Trib, and he had been covering campaigns going back to the 70s, I believe. And he went out for two days and said, I'm never doing this again. It, like everyone's just getting pushed around there. You weren't getting anything. You used to be able to talk to the candidate or his advisors, you know, and really get a sense of the campaign and maybe get some news out of it. And today... You're not getting that. But it's not just that those top line reporters weren't going out. The people that had even a little bit less experience but were more experienced than the younger people, people like myself and Scott, I'm, I mean, like I talked to Jonathan Martin um, 
uh, who now is at the New York Times. I mean, he's a guy who's been covering politics since, you know, 2005, which isn't an age, you know, isn't, you know, ages, but he had some experience and even he wasn't going out. So it was like the, no one wanted to go into that bubble. And the only people out there were um, the people just assigned to cover the campaigns by their networks on the road. So you talked about the Romney campaign in, in particular. You know, Mitt Romney, in, in a lot of respects, was sort of a throwback to a different era, um, in spite of the fact that uh, he helped sort of invent modern-day high finance. In a lot of ways, he did come off like someone from Leave it to Beaver. So my question is, uh, given the fact that he never really seemed to get the way media works today, um, how much did that affect the actual substance of the coverage. Do you feel like there was a bias against his message or his campaign because of the fact that they didn't seem to get the new media culture? Um, look, I think one thing that's in- an interesting dynamic, like if you go inside the Romney campaign, their campaign manager was uh, Matt Rhodes, who is a real student of opposition research and the internet. And he has just like this money quote in my paper in which he says, a link is a link, dude. I've been saying this since 2004, and what he means by that is that any story, no matter where it is, if it's on Red State or the New York Times, can find its way onto Drudge and become a story. And that's all that matters. It doesn't matter where something is. If something is provocative enough or interesting enough, it'll rocket around the internet and sort of shape narratives. So this guy who gets the web and gets new media was running the campaign, um, and yet... Uh, you know, you didn't really see that from a communications perspective. And, and the, the communications team on the Romney campaign, again... Um, well, you just, argue in your paper, Peter, that in attempting to have total control over the message, they totally lost control. Exactly, because they didn't realize that a news vacuum can quickly be filled in a new media atmosphere by minutiae. And again, this is a difference between when Scott and I... Um, and Scott has some really great quotes in the paper... Um, covered the campaign. I'm grateful I didn't have Twitter in 2008 when I was a campaign embed because I probably would have embarrassed myself and tweeted all kinds of nonsensical, goofy little things that I would have regretted. And I certainly wrote those things. But um, with Twitter, you have to fill that space. Everything needs to be filled at all times. And um, uh, Will Ritter, who was Romney's trip director, um, called it the news hole on the Romney campaign. They were riding around on a bus and a plane. No one was staffing the reporters, no senior advisor was there sort of spinning them or talking to them. So what what they're left to talk about and tweet about and fill these platforms with at all times is minutiae and gaffes. In a news vacuum, a gaffe is even more potent because there's not anything else to counter it with, and it just takes off. And Peter, John Berman uh, had a really good quote in your paper. He was in embed for Bush in 2000, and, um, you know, of course, at CNN now. But I forget what the what exactly he said, but it was along the lines of just what the embeds are asked to do now is just completely absurd as far as, you know, tweeting, writing blog posts, feeding video, taking live video of coverages, providing, um, you know, background information to producers, show bookers, booking the candidates, talking to staffers and networking and doing all of that, you know, 17 hour day after 17 hour day. It's really, it's crazy. And I don't know if the networks even realize how much work they're asking these kids to do. Yeah, no, Jeff. I mean, like this time, another difference between 2008 and 2012 here when talking about the TV culture um, in 2012, um, embeds were given these things called live view kits. um, And they basically put up a live signal via, you know, a bunch of wireless cards that could be taken by their 
you know, bureaus back home. So not only were they shooting video, they were putting it up uh, live. So they were sort of essentially like human satellite trucks, which is which is an amazing thing. But yeah, to Scott's point, it's impossible to do anything well when you're stretched that thin. And again, it's not necessarily the fault of these embeds. It's kind of like an institutional problem and sort of the greater problem of the internet and having so much space to fill. One quick anecdote. Um, I remember in 2008, uh, Brett Hovell, who was an uh, embed for ABC, would set up an out-of-office reply on his BlackBerry to take a 20-minute nap because people from New York and D.C. were bombarding you know, these producers every second of the day asking for um, all kinds of information. So the fact that he had to put up an out-of-office reply just to take a 20-minute nap is kind of emblematic. It's so of, funny of to read the, the, boy, the boys on the bus from the 72 campaign where they like complain about having to write their one story a day or something and it means they can't you know have whiskey at 11 in the morning that day and everyone's up in arms about it it's just a totally different culture now we're talking to peter hamby from cnn and scott conroy from real clear politics about the influence of technology on coverage of the 2012 campaign peter uh, i think you raise a a really interesting uh, and kind of vicious cycle here all the things that Scott mentioned, all the things that, that campaign reporters are asked to do, preclude them from having the time to cultivate sources and take the time with campaign staffers to really develop the relationships that provide the foundation of trust to really get stories and break big substantive stories. Does that does that sound like kind of the circle or, or vicious yeah, cycle that you see? Totally. And and. I should say that this paper was a, kind of a case study limited to the traveling press corps, the boys and girls on the bus and on the plane. But it was it became impossible to sort of talk about just that without addressing these sort of larger currents um, we're seeing in in the media these days, in the political news media and the Twitter era. Um, but do you yeah. think? But, but let's talk about that. Yeah. You know, the era. Um, some would say that sure, Twitter has accelerated politics, but has it really? changed it that much. I mean, you know, the media Mm -hmm. always served up a main course of drama with a side of substance. Mm -hmm. And you could argue that Twitter might accelerate the delivery of that meal, but hasn't really been transformative. Scott, what's what's your take? Well, I think a lot of the frustration from people's people who who Peter quotes in his paper are it, it stems out of their own perspective and their own frustrations as as reporters. So you're right. You know, the public has been fed this 24-hour news cycle that's for a, for a long time and 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 to some extent it's always been like this um but it, it for for us to do our jobs i mean i think it it, it has become um frustrating and i think that's you can see that uh in peter's paper because you you don't have time when you're out there to cultivate sources the way you want to you don't have time to work on longer pieces necessarily when you have to write 10 things that day and you're being asked to you know go in all these different directions. So I think it's really from from a journalist perspective um, that, you know, a lot of this kind of shines through. And and Ben Smith kind of in in the paper has an interesting theory about what stories matter now, like what kinds of stories. And he says you have on one side the scoop or the, you know, little bit of trivia or minutia or very funny thing they can kind of blow up on social media and Twitter and Drudge and BuzzFeed and get a lot of clicks. And then in the middle, he calls it like a big drop down to the traditional day story. Um, you know, candidate X said this today, candidate Y said this today, the kind of story that would show up, you know, on the front page of the Washington Post the next day. On the internet, people aren't really reading those stories anymore because if you care about political news, 
you've you already know what happened. Or, or if then, they or if they are reading him, they're not reading a 900 word account of him. They're yeah. reading a 250 exactly. word account of him. And then on the other side, you have the long form pieces, the long sort of you know Ryan Lizza, um, New Yorker pieces, or or the New York Times Sunday piece about Mitt Romney, his biography, um, you know some policy thing, or, things that really can make a splash. And so one thing in talking to uh, all these all these reporters for when I was uh, writing this paper, there did seem to be a real hunger for um, like a rebirth of long form. And I think going into 2016 or hopefully 2014, um, you know, editors and reporters will pull back on the impulse to chase every little thing and write the day story or the hour story when everyone else is writing the same thing. And it'll be, I hope editors can say, hey, you know what, let's pull back a little bit take god forbid two whole days three whole days to do you know like just go out somewhere and and report a story because those things can have a lot of impact uh, on a news cycle too yeah i I hope so too and one of the ironies of that is that two of the publications that are much maligned by the old guard of reporters for having sped up and and trivialized in, in their eyes the news BuzzFeed and Politico are actually taking the lead in this rebirth of long form journalism. You know, Politico starting a, a magazine mm-hmm. and uh, BuzzFeed did a couple really excellent pieces. I remember one that that drove coverage for a couple days by a young historian named Jack Borer about Mitt Romney's father, uh, which I found fascinating. It must have been a, you know, eight or nine thousand word piece. And I talked to Ben about that, too. That specific piece you mentioned about George Romney got half a million Wow. Um, page views. And and that's a good example of, you know, the fact that age may not have everything to do with it because I think Jack is like 24 or 25 yeah, years totally. old. Well, one, one thing that Peter hit on in the paper, too, is there's all the networks have the, they're, they're so competitive with each other. You know, the, the five TV networks. And it's it's actually a really weird dynamic, but they all have to if someone has anything, no matter how trivial it is. And this doesn't actually make sense to the average person, I think, as it really shouldn't. You, you can't just let them have that scoop or have that information. Everyone has to confirm it. So I think the embeds especially, they spend most of their time confirming stories that are already out there. So it's literally calling, emailing staffers saying, will you please confirm this? My, my boss is asking me just so that you can say, okay, we have this too. And that's really just like, at, at this point, it's, it's really nonsensical to do that because everyone is going to see uh, you know, it's not like it's not like people are just watching CBS or just watching ABC. When you're reading all these stories online, they're going to see them anyway somewhere else. And so it's like, yeah, go carve out your own path. Go find out something else. You know, not everyone has to jump on the same bandwagon all the time. And Jeff, the this is where I sort of touch on too how Twitter kind of changed the not just the speed of the cycle, but also the news cycle, but also like the content of what was covered. So what Scott is describing is a, um, let's say the uh, Nashua Telegraph reports that, um, you know, Senator Bag of Donuts in uh, Concord endorses, you know, Rick Santorum. Someone pops that on Twitter and then everyone kind of freaks out and tries to confirm it and chase it because Twitter is really the central news feed of the campaigns that every reporter, every assignment editor um, back home in Washington or New York is looking at to get their news. That's where news is found um, by editors now. And so they're telling their reporters, go chase this thing, when that thing might be completely irrelevant, um, not just to the American, American public, but to the campaign too. I mean, like you know very well, like 
endorsements from state senators might not actually matter that much. Easy there. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, so I think we were sort of blowing up uh, small stories into big things. And one of my favorite sections to write in the paper was uh, slugged hashtag nobody cares, which was which which came about after John Huntsman dropped out of the presidential race in South Carolina. Um, we Scott and I actually were both in Charleston. We couldn't have been stuck in a better place. Um, and his staff was also stuck in Charleston. And we were out um, having some drinks that night with uh, Jake Suski, who was one of his press aides, and Tim Miller, another one of his press aides. And Jake was just kind of infuriated by the fact that reporters were just obsessing over stagecraft and every single polling shift and all this sort of process minutia, which reporters have always obsessed about. But on Twitter, everyone sort of made it into a bigger deal than it actually was. And he started tweeting at people like Nate Silver and a number of other reporters, hashtag nobody cares. Um, And again, his point was borne out by research from Pew, which is that um, the stuff happening on Twitter that we are all talking about is actually being ignored um, by the American public. Pew did another study where they measured the reaction of the American public to sort of major events like the Obamacare ruling on healthcare to the reaction of Twitter to these events. Um, just tonally, and the reaction on Twitter was just completely different from what um, the rest of the country is talking about. Twitter is, uh, according... You mean you you think Twitter was snarkier than... Yes, well, this is actually, we all say that all the time, and we know that, but Pew actually sort of measured the uh, tone of the conversation in various platforms, TV, radio, uh, news websites, Facebook, um, and Twitter came out to be by far the most negative uh, space out of all of those things. So... That's where we live every day as reporters. When we wake up, we are on Twitter, and it, it infuses our coverage, I think, with a little bit more um, cynicism, um, snark, and, and condescension, and I'm not sure it was always that way. Joe Klein, um, I quoted at one point in the paper, who's obviously, he doesn't even use Twitter. He told me he has someone back at time who like tweets for him, but he said it's gotten to the point where the hardest story to write for a reporter is a positive story because our default posture has slid from skepticism to cynicism. And I think he's kind of right about that. One thing that's kind of interesting to think about, you know, when you're talking about the old boys on the bus versus now, is obviously those guys were really competitive against each other too. But, you know, if you're writing for the Miami Herald in 1972 and you're on the bus, um, the the other people on the bus aren't necessarily going to even see your story. So I think you, the tendency is to write for your readers, as it should be. Whereas now that we all read each other's stories instantaneously, the moment they're up on the web and they're on Twitter, I mean, I, I'm pretty confident that, that there is a um, significant percentage of times when reporters are writing to each other more so than, than, than their audience where they should be writing. They're trying to outdo one another. Which, of course, lends itself to a little more cynicism and yeah. probably a little less optimism. So, Scott, you wrote a book about someone who became a media sensation. And really, in this kind of new era that we're talking about, she exemplified it for a while, Sarah Palin. Uh, she learned how to leverage new media to build a fan base via pithy and provocative sound bites, And yet, her star has fallen now. So my question to you is, can political celebrity be sustained virtually in the way that she was able to do for a couple of years after yeah. she got out of I think politics. it's interesting. People forget that, yeah, that's when she was one of the first politicians to get on Facebook and on Twitter and really use it not just to release 
press releases. You know, she, that's her on there tweeting. But to be informal. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, you could see the grammatical mistakes or the sort of yeah. same verbal tics. And, and her fans you. love that. I mean, mm-hmm. people that are supporters of her, have always, you know, they still love it. Um, I don't think, like, Sarah Palin's downfall and in, in the national discourse is a result of her Twitter use. I mean, I think she could have gone a different route over the last few years and been a lot more relevant than she is now and 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 continued to use Twitter in a way that she had at the beginning. So I, I think it is potentially sustainable. And that's not to say that Palin has no influence now. I mean, clearly she does, but it's it's also clearly waned a lot in my view. Um, but she, she was definitely a pioneer as far as that goes. And I think she could have... Um, done a little better in sustaining that than she did. And I think someone in the future will. We're talking to Scott Conroy of Real Clear Politics and Peter Hamby of CNN about a recent Harvard paper that uh, that Peter wrote about technology and media coverage of the 2012 election. Peter, you ask in the book, kind of looking forward, if the machinery of Clinton world, uh, the layers of staff and 90s era wise men, as you call them, are prepared to deal with the next generation of Twittering, Instagramming, social media natives in the press who fetishize authenticity. What's your take looking at the last few weeks of stories, uh, a couple of which have have brought uh, Hillary Clinton in, in some unusual ways? For example, her first tweet uh, a few weeks um, after she hadn't tweeted in a few weeks, and then the Syria uh, issue came up, and uh, I think her first tweet in weeks was about the person swimming across the English Channel. Yeah, no, she was. She tweeted about Diana Nyad um, right at the moment when the sort of uh, crisis over what to do in Syria was cresting, and that tweet was, I can tell you, and you know this, sent around uh, reporters throughout Washington and kind of mocked, like why. You know, you know, you have to answer for the Syria thing as a former Secretary of State, and at least Wayanna, and you're tweeting about this swimming thing. Now, I understand what the campaign will say is that, like, well, we're just talking to like, you know, regular people who read Twitter. We don't care about what you guys in Washington think, but you do kind of have to care about what people in Washington think, unfortunately. Um, and I think the Romney campaigns refusal to deal with uh, the press in a, in a constructive way. Um, sort of bore, bore that out. Um, and I think the tone of the tweet as well, it kind of had that aggrieved tone about she knew what it was like to swim with sharks. Right. Maybe it didn't really fit the zeitgeist. Yeah, no. And I think you've seen a number of stories um, involving Clinton spokespeople, uh, or one in particular, over the last few weeks, um, sort of needlessly involving themselves in the, in the Wiener scandal. And um, there was a story today about Huma Abedin returning to Clinton World and their spokesman, Philippe um, Rhinus, like responded with this really sort of aggravated, you know, passive aggressive, sorry, aggressive email. Um, and I think in a previous age, a, a threatening email like that, trying to wave a reporter off a story, you know, it might have worked. But now, you know, with, uh, you know, again, a lot of younger reporters who really came of age in the Politico era. The impulse is just to post that on the internet and get clicks, um, which gets to another point about what Hillary and possibly Jeb Bush, who hasn't run for office since 2002, um, might have to deal with if they run for president, which is that, um, you know, guess what? Uh, you know, Morning Joe and Tina Brown, these people don't really determine the national discourse exclusively anymore. There's a significant generational turnover uh, among political journalists. There are a number of reporters who uh, 
came to Washington when Politico was starting, uh, who are their incentives now are to break news and deliver scoops and uh, be online all the time. The example I keep using is Zeke Miller, who I think is actually, you know, a really good young reporter who hustles. Um, but Zeke is 23 years old, which means that he was two years old when the Clintons took office <laughs> in the White House. He is not beholden uh, to the Clinton people. He doesn't view them with the same sense of awe that I think some older journalists might. Um, and I'm not saying Hillary won't hire, you know, a wonderful staff that will be that sort of understands the tempo of the news media and the behaviors of like a lot of younger reporters. Um, but, you know, and I think we've talked about this before. Hillary is surrounded by not just layers of staff, but generations of staff and decades of staff. And she, you know, like John McCain in 2008, is going to have many people whispering in her ear about what to do. And I think there will be candidates who aren't surrounded by Secret Service and who aren't surrounded by an army of staffers in 2016 who are just going to be able to engage a la Rick Santorum or Mike Huckabee off the cuff with reporters, and they will get rewarded for it. Um, because I think reporters, <laughs> sorry, I don't. I know reporters uh, like it when candidates engage with them on a one-on-one basis. Well, Peter, listen, uh, loved your study. It's getting some great acclaim throughout the the country, and I want to congratulate you on that. Um, you should also probably check your Twitter because Scott's probably scooped you. He's been on his phone pretty much every time you've been talking. <laughs> anyway, your editor's probably calling you. Why didn't you get this? Um, <laughs> Do we but, have this? <laughs> Do we have this? Yeah. Anyway, thanks so much for, for joining us from Washington. Scott Conroy, uh, author of Sarah from Alaska, uh, from Real Clear Politics. Thanks so much for, for being here. All right. Thanks for having thanks, me. Thanks, Jeff. Hi, this is Polyoptics with Jeff Smith sitting in for Josh King this week. We've got Blake Zeff here with us for the second segment of the program today. Blake is the politics editor for Salon Magazine and a veteran of New York politics. So I want to welcome you here to Polyoptics, Blake. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. And congratulations on the impending birth of your next child. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah, I just had one a couple weeks ago myself. So uh, when you're awake at at 2 a.m., you can, or 4 a.m., or whatever time, you can uh, send me a text. I will. Anyway, Blake, you've been following New York politics for a long time, yep. and I know you followed the citywide elections quite closely, and mm-hmm. so uh, I want to ask you a few questions about what we saw this week. A lot of people, including Errol Lewis, who I know is a, an authority on, on New York politics, mm-hmm. have written that the election was a so-called triumph of integrity. You know, they, they saw the Wiener loss and the Spitzer loss and the loss of some local politicians mm-hmm. who'd been ensnared with various types of uh, scandal, and they asked, hey... Is this New Yorkers kind of exhibiting, you know, a, a higher level of morality, you know, than say South Carolinians who who uh, welcomed Mark Sanford back into politics? Do you buy this theory? And if so, why or why not? I'm not sure that I buy that. Uh, you know, New York is more moral than South Carolina. I think every race is different and individual, whether that's within New York or also New York versus South Carolina. They each have their own dynamics, their own candidates, and all those kinds of things. But I do think it's interesting that you had a number of uh, you know, scandal plagued, for lack of a better word, uh, candidates who in this instance really just did not do particularly well. And this actually goes back a couple of years. That, um, you know, in the state Senate in uh, Albany, there were a couple of uh, members who were, how do we say this, put in, in disrepute, shall we say, who uh, were not 
brought back by the voters. So the voters in New York are very educated, very informed, especially the ones that come out in, in a Democratic primary, kind of your New York City Democratic prime electorate. These are informed people. They're high information voters. They know what's going on. They're not going to be fooled by a glossy mailer that comes at the last minute. Um, if someone's been ensnared in trouble, they're likely to know about it. And I think that's what happened here to some extent. So you made the argument in a piece this week that uh, Bill de Blasio, the the likely Democratic mm-hmm. nominee for uh, for mayor. Very, very likely. <laughs> very, very likely. Um, Thompson hasn't dropped out while I've been on the air, has he? As of this minute, I don't <laughs> think so, but I think that could come pretty soon. I, I, I would be shocked if he drags us out much longer. Absolutely. Um, you made the argument in a piece this week that his victory did not signify the national liberal revival that, uh, that many pundits have suggested. And you say historically, the most liberal, plausible candidate wins New York primaries. This wasn't really anything out of the ordinary. Why don't you flesh that out a little bit for us? Sure. So, look, it would be a wonderful thing if it did augur some sort of bigger liberal revival. I, I'm not trying to, you know, uh, be, be anti-liberal in saying this. But if you look historically at New York City citywide Democratic primary uh, outcomes in, I'd say, the last, let's say, 12 years. I mean, you could go back to Koch in the 70s, and this would not be true, right? But this is a different city now. Starting back in 2001, Mark Green and Freddie Ferrer were going at it. They were the two really kind of liberal candidates in that field. Uh, Ferrer got the most votes in the primary. He was running a very liberal campaign, actually very similar to what de Blasio did this time. He was running on, on, quote, a tale of two cities. Almost word for word, the same message that de Blasio has now that's taking the world by storm is something that's been going on in New York politics since 2001. And Ferrer then did it again in 2005. And Peter Vallone in that race ran a campaign not unlike Anthony Weiner's about the middle class right. outer borough That's guy right. and That's got right. about the same percentage of the vote. Correct. And so, right. And so, so 2000... maybe the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. Especially in recent history. So then in 2009, you had uh, Bill de Blasio running for public advocate. He was not doing well in the polls initially um, because, you know. New York voters and most voters aren't paying attention over the summer. As we get to late August, uh, that's when you start to see these turnarounds. And as as this year, in 2009, de Blasio started to really come back from behind in the field for public advocate in 2009 and then won his primary running as a liberal. John Liu, same thing for controller in 2009. Eric Schneiderman for attorney general in 2010. All these candidates were trailing. They were running as the liberal. When voters started paying attention in mid to late August, they started catching up. That's what happened with de Blasio this time. To be clear, he ran a great campaign. There was a lot that was special about this campaign. I think his family really captivated the attention Absolutely. and the hearts of New Yorkers. But if you look at the message that he ran on, it's a little bit premature to say that this is signaling some new thing because it's what's been going on in New York Democratic primaries for a while. They have to give a guy credit for sticking with a yeah. message throughout, you know, throughout the spring and, and much of the summer. Polls weren't moving at all, but they had the discipline, I think, and, and the foresight to uh, to stick with that message, and it ended up really resonating. True. So let me ask you another question uh, about the, the mayoral race. We've had 20 years in a city where Democratic registrations outnumber Republican registrations more than six to one. We've had 20 years now with Republicans at Gracie's Mansion. Going forward, given Michael Bloomberg's obvious antipathy towards de Blasio, as we saw uh, in stark relief last weekend when he called de Blasio's campaign racist, might Bloomberg be willing to drop millions or tens of millions of dollars on an independent expenditure to try to elect Republican nominee Joe Loda? And if he did so, would that help or would it hurt? 
Fantastic question. Uh, and I, I can assure you that the Bloomberg people have thought about this. They like to think about how do they kind of uh, avenge their enemies and how do they use their money for political purposes. I have another story that I did on, I think it was Monday for Salon, talking about why Bloomberg snapped. And it was really because de Blasio was one of the few critics during his mayoralty who he couldn't really control, whether through political leverage or money. He's sort of powerless to stop him. And that really um, has, has had quite an effect, I think, on, on Mayor Bloomberg's uh, posture during this campaign. And so the question is now, in a general election, he might have a more valuable endorsement than he did during the primary. So I think it's not at all inconceivable that he would endorse Loda. The question then becomes, does he want to spend a lot of money? Is that money well spent? Could a boomerang against him? Could de Blasio run against those, you know, run against Bloomberg in a general election? I think that's a much tougher question. In a Democratic primary, yes, he kind of could. Citywide, Michael Bloomberg is not totally hated at all. Um, in fact, he's probably slightly more favorable than unfavorable. I haven't seen the latest polls for the general public. So I think that's a tougher strategy for de Blasio. So yes, I think it's possible that Bloomberg could spend some money and that it might actually have some effect. Who do you think Christine Quinn votes for? <laughs> My guess is that she will. <laughs> Look, if there's a runoff between the bills, de Blasio and Thompson, I think she endorses Thompson without having to think about it very hard. I think she ultimately probably would bring herself to back the Democratic nominee if it got to that point, would be my guess. But I am not inside her head or her conference rooms with her strategists. So you talked a little bit about the strategies that Bloomberg has used over the last 12 years to kind of mollify uh, or co-opt some of his critics. And one thing that that you've talked about uh, and I've written about uh, uh, quite a bit is street money. (laughs) And why don't you describe what street money is and how Bloomberg has used street money in a very different way Um, kind of than street money is traditionally used. And so you might not call it exactly that, but basically um, used his largesse to try to uh, gain support throughout the city and quiet his enemies. Sure. As you said, he has a very specific kind of, if you will, street money uh, method, which is, for example, when he was running in 2000, I think it was 2005, he really wanted to have uh, some key African-American support. And so, you know, there was a lot of speculation as to how he was getting... um, you know, a, a real kind of lack of criticism on a lot of the a lot of the initiatives that he was doing. And when he was endorsed by Reverend Calvin Butts, who's a very prominent, uh, respected member of the clergy in New York at the Abyssinian Church uh, in, in Harlem, the New York Times reported that Butts uh, was asked about it at the press conference and said something to the effect of, look, the guy's spent a million dollars towards the programs I'm working on. I can't go and say no to that. And you you almost can understand where the reverend's coming from. And so this is what happens. Michael Bloomberg has tons of private money, his own money. He gives it, you know, gets called charity. (laughs) It's wonderful. It's the best form of charity or quote unquote philanthropy, which actually suits his political needs. So he's able to give money to all these nonprofits and charities and causes you might think are worthy causes. But what it does is it silences any of those civic leaders or political leaders from you know, attacking him and actually gets them to endorse him. And so, um, you know, there's even a good government group, Citizens Union, who opposed his Bloomberg's... Uh, the term limits. That's right. His, his attempt to overturn term limits. They were absolutely opposed to it. He'd, his pr- uh, private company had given money to them for many years. And so even though they were so outraged about term limits, they then endorsed him that year. Even though that sort of embodies a, a violation of good government to, oh, yeah. to go back on <laughs> something as fundamental as that. Absolutely. So... Let me ask you a question going forward sure. here. Bloomberg has done a lot of things that uh, many many people in the city have liked. On the other hand, not all groups have shared in the prosperity of the Bloomberg era. De Blasio focused on those groups who have been left behind in the primary. However, 
in the general election, he's probably going to have to tack at least a little bit to the middle because he ran as a pretty conventional Park Slope liberal in the primary. On what issues do you think he begins to tack to the center? And is it convincing enough to ensure a Democratic win, do you think? It's a great question. You know, it, it's funny. The the Republican opponent in this race, Joe Loda, is not what when you think of a Republican, that is not what Joe Loda is. Joe Loda is in favor of legalizing marijuana. Pretty sure he's in favor of, of uh, legal marriage equality. Pro-choice, I think, as well. So a lot of the things that you normally would throw at a Republican in any part of the country, but particularly in New York, are not going to work here. And so what that does is, to, to my mind, I think this campaign is going to come down to two issues that are always big issues in New York City mayor's races uh, since time immemorial, or at least, you know, many decades back, which is crime and the economy. And these have always been used when when Republicans are successful, they use it to sort of scare voters um, on one issue or the other. So with Bloomberg in 2001, when he was running, it was, we need to rebuild the economy. Mark Green is not going to be able to do that. I will be the one to do that. I'm a businessman. If you don't vote for me, the economy is going to be terrible. This was right after 9-11. People were scared already. It really played to that. And then Bloomberg, again, justified his third term in 2009, overcoming term limits by saying, oh, you know, we're about to enter the Great Recession. You really need someone with my abilities. Otherwise, you know, you're all going to be homeless. It's going to be terrible. Right. And so that that's on the economy. And then in terms of crime, of course, Giuliani, most famously, but even going back to Koch back in the days, it was always a thing of, you know, you really need someone who's going to be tough on crime. We need a competent manager. Oh, God, don't vote for the liberal. They're going to it's going to be terrible. Giuliani really used that against Dinkins. So it's one of those two things. I think, again, those are going to be the two issues where I think Loda is going to really stick to stop and frisk. He's going to warn that if we don't continue these policies, that all these achievements that you've seen in, in crime reduction in recent years are at risk. Because, you know, de Blasio can't now say, oh, I'm going to keep stopping frisk where it is. I don't think he wants to. So I think that is going to be a real difference in the general election that is not going to be, you know, moderated to the center. I think that's a real uh, ironclad difference between the two. And then on the economy, you know, de Blasio made waves with that proposal to kind of tax the upper bracket, you know, people making over 500000 to pay for pre-K. Um, I'm sure that he will t- flesh that out and have a more broad economic strategy that makes it clear that he is um, not merely trying to t- you know, target that one group. But still, that's on the record. And you know Loda is going to pick on that as well. And so I think that we're going to have a big discussion about, hopefully, inequality in this city and uh, you know, not just being a mayor for one part of the city, but others. But I think you can really look for the economy and crime to be those two core issues that we're going to have this debate on. So let's talk briefly about a couple of the down-ballot races here in New York. The Comptroller's race got a lot of uh, national attention because of one of the candidates in it, Elliot Spitzer. Now, by all accounts, a brilliant guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Spitzer wasn't quite able to get over the top in the face of overwhelming institutional uh, and editorial page support for his opponent, Scott Stringer. Why do you think he, he wasn't quite able to get there? You know, I, I, I have to say, I, I, do, I, I do, thought he was going to win. I, I do not think that he ran a good campaign. I have to really okay. be honest with you about that. I think he, he hired two very good um, national operatives in uh, Liz Smith and, and Hari Savugan, um, who, who have done presidential campaigns and you know, worked at the DNC and Obama and all that. Other than that, he made very few tactically good decisions, in my opinion, and I'll explain why. I think when you are kind of doing this kind of comeback tour, New Yorkers are willing to give you a chance. They were willing to give him a chance. The early polls were good. They were willing to give Anthony Weiner a chance at the beginning. Those early polls were good. And then from there, you have to sort of make your case. Um, so I think he had every opportunity. But what happened, in my view, is at the beginning of this race, I think Elliot 
was probably prepared to be a little bit more humble and kind of reacquaint himself with voters, ask for their forgiveness, ask for their support, really reach out a little bit more. But interestingly, and perhaps surprisingly, the early polls showed him up by about 15, 20 points. So all of a sudden, instead of doing what I think he really needed to do, which is not take this forgiveness for granted and really get back and reconnect with voters, he did what was more of like a front runner's Rose Garden strategy, which is what you do when you're up by 20 points, which is sort of you know, not do a ton of events, hide behind a lot of TV commercials, really try to play it safe, don't make too many gaffes, that kind of thing, which I think was exactly the wrong approach. And he was almost damned by those early good polls in a way, because I think it led him to that poor strategy. Yeah, Stringer, uh, what's your sense of the campaign that Stringer ran? I think he ran a good... Very immediately when Spitzer announced, I thought he handled that very poorly, given the sort of irony in the fact that he had fallen back into the comptroller's race out of the mayor's race and bigfooted a few candidates (laughs) who had previously been in that race. Then he sort of whined and complained for the first week or two about Spitzer doing the same thing to him. So I didn't think he comported himself that well originally. Yeah, I actually wrote something about that that week. It's funny you mentioned that, which is to say that I thought that you know, there was this argument that Elliot Spitzer was ter- entering the race was terrible for democracy. It wasn't fair to voters. The New York Times and others had called on him to get out of the race and said, oh, you know, does- Scott Stringer deserves better. Voters deserve better than these distractions. And so, you know, I think the headline of the story at Salon was, you know, the worst anti-Spitzer argument ever, which is yeah. if you're going to argue that it's bad for democracy for Elliot Spitzer to get into a race where the only alternative is Scott Stringer runs unopposed, that's a very poor argument about democracy. I think most voters would say it's better to have a choice than none at all. So I agree. But I will say that... Especially when the choice for a a municipal, a down-ballot municipal office as a former governor and attorney general. Sure, Not of course. an awful choice. Right, Obviously exactly. Obviously a flawed man, but... Totally. And, you know, I I agree with you. Stringer at first seemed to be kind of whining a little bit as if he was entitled to the thing. But I will say he didn't challenge the, the ballots. You know, in New York, there are kind of stringent restrictions on how to get onto the ballot. You have to have a certain number of petitions signed. And, you know, the people who sign them have to have a certain address and they can't be forgers and all these things. And I really thought that because Spitzer kind of compiled the signatures really, really, really quickly, there was a chance that some of those could have been knocked off. And I thought that Spitz, uh, Stringer was going to use uh, some of his friends to challenge those those petitions. And he did not do it to his great credit. He said, bring it on. Let's do it. And, you know, no one runs a, public, a, a perfect race, but he carried a lot of support. It was a very interesting coalition, obviously, we should mention for Stringer, which was the Wall Street people who Spitzer had gone after and hated him were supporting Stringer, but also the unions and all the Democratic establishment types um, who also didn't want to support Spitzer also for Stringer. So it was a very well, interesting know, coalition that Stringer had behind him. You know but his credit, he came from behind. Your enemy, uh, the <laughs> enemy of your enemy is your new best friend. That's how I feel about Boston Red Sox fans as a, as a Mets <laughs> fan, by the way. <laughs> so last, uh, let's talk about a race that very few people probably followed that closely around the country, but probably some people in Washington did, uh, which is the public advocates race, the office that was a springboard for Bill de Blasio. One of the candidates in that race was Reshma Sajani, who was a former congressional candidate uh, who had received some support from within the Beltway, where where a lot of the polyoptics listeners tune in from. Um, She, probably the most well-known candidate nationally, ended up finishing third in that primary to Tish James and Daniel Squadron, a state senator. Um, What are your thoughts on that race as a whole? I know you've got a reporter over at Salon who hasn't been a big fan of hers. Yeah, so this was a really interesting race. You had um, Daniel Squadron is a uh, 
Brooklyn State Center actually has parts of Manhattan as well, um, has kind of that brownstone Brooklyn, white Jewish liberal base um, that is very active in the Democratic primary electorate. Tish James, African-American, um, also has a very engaged base as well, also from Brooklyn. Um, curried more of the support, cobbled together more support from labor, which is very important in Democratic primary electorates. So, but what was interesting was that James had very little money in terms of campaign contributions. I think she might have spent 200,000 bucks in the race, which is very, you know, squadron in millions. And so they were running two very different kinds of races where Tish was all about grassroots, uh, Tish James, that is, yeah. grassroots, African-American base, labor, really bringing people to the polls, where Squadron, who had worked uh, for Chuck Schumer, and full disclosure, I once did many, many years ago as well, um, at, at the same time he was there, um, got the support of Schumer, Ran ads, had a lot of money, so he was able to broadcast that Schumer ad. I mean, you felt like you saw it, you know, every hour on the hour that thing was on TV. He had a lot of money for for commercials, and also had his own base. And then you had uh, Reshma Sajani. There were actually five, four or five um, candidates in that race, but these were the three kind of prime. Uh, uh, most prominent ones. So Johnny had a lot of money. She had a lot of money, not just from Washington, but from kind of Silicon Valley, the tech sector. Very interesting situation. She ran for Congress a couple of years ago as sort of a finance person who was going to bring the kind of the best lessons from Wall Street and smart management, I suppose, to uh, run against a Democratic congresswoman, Carolyn Maloney, who by all accounts was relatively popular. There was no sort of movement to get rid of her. And that just didn't work. Uh, you know, unfortunately for her, the timing was totally off, if it's ever good, in that, that that's sort of when the anti-Wall Street fervor started bursting. So within the campaign that year, I think that was 2010, she had to suddenly be like, well, no, I'm actually not the pro-Wall Street candidate. Uh, you know, I'm the daughter of immigrants, and that's really who I am. And so she had a very kind of inauspicious debut in politics. And then this time around, you know, set her sights on the public advocate office, which is the number two office in the city. If the mayor becomes infirm or, God forbid, you know, dies or something like that in office, there would be a special election. But before that, the public advocate would be the mayor. And so, um, you know, Saljani, after really, only, I think, only getting 19 percent of the vote in her primary, you know, to 81 percent for the incumbent in 2010, then set her sights on almost maybe even a higher office. Uh, running for public advocate and just was never able to really cobble together support that she needed to compete with those top two vote getters. She had, you know, a good amount of money, but I think just had a little bit of a confusing message. So the last question I'll ask you here, Blake, is uh, uh, Hillary Clinton. Yeah. She um, clearly appears to be interested in staying on the national stage. How did these local elections uh, have any impact on what's going on with Hillary Clinton as she deliberates about her next step? I don't think much. You know, there was some talk that Anthony Weiner shenanigans because his wife, you know, has, has worked for Hillary Clinton for a long time would have an impact. I think when push comes to shove, she's going to have her own deliberations, think about it in a very uh, thoughtful, deliberative uh, manner. I don't think these election results will have too much of an impact on her. And I think she'll take her time. And uh, I wouldn't expect to hear much on this for a long time. I saw that Huma went back to, to Hillary land uh, this afternoon. Do you have any thoughts more broadly on you know, her prospects? Obviously a very formidable candidate. Um, it's just so early and I hate to be the kind of the wet blanket on the fun talk about the 2016 speculation, but it's just always true that when you think back on previous campaign cycles, whoever seems like they're going to be the great person in that first year, uh, you know, after the previous election, you know, Joe Lieberman was leading polls two cycles back. Um, I don't think anyone was thinking about Obama, you know, back in 2005. Yeah, Hillary was so, inevitable in January of 2007. That's right. That's right. So it's I, I think my main thought is keep your powder dry, sit back and relax, wait, who knows what 
uh, Elizabeth Warren might decide to do. Apparently, she gave a very rousing yeah. speech. At, was it the AFL-CIO? I think there's clearly a lot of running room to the left of Hillary in a Democratic primary, whether it's on issues of, of high finance, because she has received a lot of support from Wall Street, issues of war and peace or national security, NSA surveillance. Uh, I do think there is substantial running room. It's going to be interesting to watch uh, the sort of fight for the soul of the Democratic Party if a plausible challenger does emerge from the left. Absolutely. And I think it's great for the Democratic Party to actually have a primary. I know people think, oh, you want to just anoint your person and have them run. I think it's good for the party to really kind of have these, you know, I don't want to say fights, but have these sort of arguments, these battles, figure it out. Really, as you said, the soul of the party is at stake. And I think it's a great opportunity to kind of hash out those differences. Blake Zeff, the politics editor at Salon and uh, sort of a young dean of New York politics. Uh, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter, at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.